This is a Founding Media podcast. Welcome to another episode of Masters and Founders. This week, we are sitting down with branding and marketing master, Don Donovan. Don is an inventor, data junkie, and author of The Right to Succeed, a marketing approach guaranteed to deliver. With 20 years of client experience at Procter & Gamble in brand, category, and general management, and 15 years of marketing consulting as founder and CEO of Baker Street Solutions, Don is Baker Street's discovery guru. Don's vision for how consumer behavior is translated into predictive modeling is the basis for his extraordinary career. I'll let him tell you more about how he maneuvered throughout his career. Good morning. This is Dan Diller with Masters and Founders. I'm so excited to uh, bring a special guest on this morning, Don Donovan with Baker Street. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited about this story. I've been working with Don on a few projects over the last uh, month or so. Just excited to hear the story of where Don started, as well as the interesting stuff that, that he's doing behind the scenes. So let's get right into this. Don, tell us tell us your history. Where did you start? Yeah, so it's a little bit about myself. So again, Don Donovan, that's actually my real name. Whenever I go through the airport, people look at my driver's license, they say, is that really your real name? And I say, yes, the Don Donovan Show. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I started Baker Street in 2002, and it's called Baker Street because 221B Baker Street is the address of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And I was working for Procter & Gamble at the time. So I'd worked for Procter & Gamble for 20 years. Okay. You know, you may not know this, but P&G is the inventor of the brand management system. Okay. And you always start at the bottom. P&G only promotes from within. So we started as a brand assistant on Pantene in the early 80s. Okay. And after 20 years, at the very end, I was, my title was Vice President of Marketing Innovation. Mm-hmm. And I was sent out to San Francisco. So here I am in San Francisco, 1999, in the middle of the dot-com boom. Wow. And I went out there to help run a company called Reflect.com. It was custom beauty. And we had invented, P&G, these decision tree analysis. Women would go online and they would answer a series of questions. And after they'd answered those questions, we would create a formula card, the actual chemistry, Mm -hmm. right? For the customized beauty product in skincare, hair care, body washes, color cosmetics, and perfumes. And uh, my name is on two of those patents. Yes. So we were working on that business, and that was right in 2000, as you probably remember, had a lot of things happening in it, and one of them was the dot-com bust. Right. Sounds like one of those dot-com companies that might have had some promise, and I'm not sure, did it go on to succeed, or did it, did, did it get part of the victim of all the things that happened during dot-coms? You know, we, we survived a long time because we had really great, talented people, I would admit. You know, about half the people were sent from the mothership mm-hmm. out from P&G in Cincinnati, and the other half were brought in from the outside. So it was a great combination of individuals. And we did survive. But at the end, P&G took it all back inside. Yeah. They took all of our patents, and, and this has been very successful, especially in the color cosmetics business, where we had all kinds of things that went globally on the P&G brands. So that was, a, that was a very exciting time in my life. But I was kind of telling you, listen, there's 20 years of P&G and I skipped over it in about five seconds. But I'm not going to bore you with that. I'm going to tell you what happened when I started Baker Street. Well, tell me before we jump into Baker Street, um, your background education-wise, like what, what, what 
What made me, what made me who I am. So yeah. undergraduate degrees in the mathematical sciences, okay. and then a graduate degree in decision sciences. Okay. And a combination of that in marketing. And if you went to Procter & Gamble, you know, that's where you get your PhD in marketing, right? They don't really grant you any degree, but that's what it feels like. You know, one of the best. I heard you leave a point at, at. Oh, well, okay. So that's a great story, Dan. And hopefully I'm not bore the audience with this too much. In 1996, I was appointed research fellow of the Procter & Gamble company. The only person from marketing to ever win that award. And to get that award, you have to do something for the company, right? So we invented a methodology. It was called the fine fragrance methodology to create perfumes that would beat the competition so that they would actually sell more. So in 1996, we sold a hundred million dollars more in one year. Wow. And uh, I yeah, got they, named they research gave, fellow. And they gave you an award. <laughs> they gave me an award. And I love P&G. They didn't come with any extra money. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> it was just love. It was, that's right. Yeah. But I, when, I, when I walked across that, that stage and got my appointment. It's it's still framed. It's the one thing I have in my office. I don't have anything else from PNG there, but it says uh, on October the seventeenth, nineteen ninety six, Don Donovan is appointed research fellow of the Procter and Gamble Company. Well, as you know, the name of the show is Masters and Founders, and what what I consider a master is anyone that spent over ten thousand hours or more in a craft that they love. Oh. Sounds like you've spent that plus <laughs> doing research and mathematics and formulas and gathering data, the underlying uh, secret sauce of how people purchase things. Yeah, that's exactly right. We look at what the, we call the causal factors of purchase, mm -hmm. right? Why people buy and why they don't buy. Mm -hmm. And that all began back in 2002, Dan, when I got my very first assignment outside the company, <laughs> outside of B&G, yeah. I sold one of my friends on my capability. Okay. It was a guy at Clorox. We won't mention any names. Okay. <laughs> but I was asked, how would they sell more uh, Hidden Valley Ranch dressing? Wait, that was, you said Clorox. Yeah, Hidden, uh, Hidden Valley Ranch is one of the most important food brands that the Clorox Corporation makes. Interesting. Yeah, they, they have all kinds of divisions. They, okay. they make all great all kinds of great products. And, you know, the, the West, you know, people used to call them P&G West. Okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, but I went to this project and I only, I said, how would you solve this? If you had to start all over, Dan, he said, I own this company and there's no, there's nobody there, but you're the CEO and you're struggling to sell more Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. What would you do? And what I did was I only did ethnographic interviews at the moments of truth, where people use products and where they buy them. So we did interviews in stores where people were looking at grocery store shelves and deciding which salad dressing to buy and in the house where they were actually eating salad and salad dressing and other things. And we videoed that. And one of the videos was a woman in Oklahoma who had five children, all under the ages of 12. And she took out this Haddon Billy Ranch and she went, and some for you and some for you and some for you and some for you and some for you. And that's for your vegetables. And so she had all these raw vegetables and when the Clorox people saw this, they go, wow. <laughs> you know, because right after that, I showed a video where a woman said, you know, Hidden Valley Ranch is the second ketchup. Wow. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating what corporations, once they build something, they don't understand what they build until the, the audience tells them sometimes. I really agree with that. And, you know, I own an advertising agency and have... Lots of great copywriters, but I tell them, can you just use the consumer's language? You know, can, can you just find a way to say this in the way consumers actually talk? Okay. Because the benefits actually are what those people are buying the product for. 
And we also do what we call anonymous shopping. We go into the grocery stores and we stand there and we say, you know, and I, listen, at the time, listen, I'm an old man now, but when I was a young man, it worked even better. I would stand in the aisle and I would say, you know, my wife sent me out here to, you know, get a salad dressing because we're having some people over and I got to choose three. What should I, what should I pick? You wouldn't believe how helpful people are. Wow. People say, well, gosh, I love this one and, and this one. And I go, well, why is that? You know what I mean? I'm getting at the why. And I go, listen, and they go, listen, you got to have a safe one, right? Because, mm -hmm. But you can also have a very adventurous one. Right? So, so go for one like the ginger sesame one. That's your adventurous one. Yeah. And then get a really safe one. And she goes, and then the woman in the standing aisle, she goes, and always get a blue cheese one. And I go, why is that? She goes, men love blue cheese. <laughs> it's fascinating. So uh, I want to catch the audience up. You now own Baker Street. You started with Parker Gamble and math and the, the studies and all the things you created, but then you started Baker Street and the story about Sherlock Holmes. I mean, what was yeah, that? Sure. So I just love Conan Doyle stories. Okay. And you know, when he ever gets asked, you know, how, where did this person come from? And this individual has just gotten off a train. And he said, the person just got off from Maidenhead. And the person would say, well, how did you know that? Mm -hmm. Right? And he goes, oh, by this observation. Right? And then he would name the observation. You see the ticket stubs sticking out of their pocket or the, 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 they have a certain kind of clothes on or maybe they had a little dirt on their shoes or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. But Holmes solved it. And then they would, he would say, they would say it. Then he would explain how he did it. And what do the people always say? Well, now that you tell me how you did it, it's really not very impressive. Right. And, and Dan, that's actually my story. My story is when we're, when we're doing all this work and we're talking to consumers and we're doing, it's hard work. You know, we go do 75 one-on-ones all over the country at points of, at moments of truth in the store and in the people's houses. It, it's a lot of work. And then we synthesize it all. But in the end, we, we tell the client the answer and they go, well, that's super fascinating, but we knew all that. Well, yeah, but you weren't doing anything with it, right? right. Yeah, right. you weren't making your messaging like this. So you help them identify. We the identify message. the causal factors of purchase, why people buy and don't buy, and then we quantitatively test those ideas. We make a whole bunch of conceptual ideas, we test them, and we find out which one has the highest interest, the most purchase intention. Then when we make those ads, we, we sell more. Right? And doesn't that sound simple? Of course, yeah. But that's really the story of Sherlock Holmes. The story of Holmes is the, the Home Office loses the Naval Treaty or it's stolen. Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes is asked to come in when Scotland Yard can't solve it. Wow. Right? Yeah. And that's who we are at Baker Street. So I want to know, and you've talked about your growth and your, your rapid growth over the last couple of years, your company is just blowing up. Can you tell us a little bit about, one, how fast it's growing? And then we, I want to dive into the three whys. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Listen, I've said this to you before, Dan, we've met, but it's the absolute truth. I'm an overnight success after 35 years. I love this. Thing, <laughs> I've been working for a long time to build this thing up. But in the last six quarters, we're growing at more than 25% a quarter. Wow. And the business is simply taking off. And it's because we have, what do you might call it the secret sauce, but the secret sauce is the idea of why people buy and don't buy, quantitative proofs, data analytics applied to sell more product. Right? We tell clients, we're only here to help you sell more unit volume velocity. If I came in and told you I could get you more top line revenue, and the first thing I said is raise your prices, well, I didn't really help your business. Right? I have to help your business by increasing unit volume velocity and proving that we can do it. 
So I know there's several pieces to this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to them. One of the things though, sounds like you've been able to, after 35 years, connect the dots really cleanly, cleanly and seamlessly uh, to where yet now there's a product that's supercharged. And part of the reason from what, what I'm learning is you're helping companies tell their story better by talking to clients and so on. But that's that's one thing. That's called uh, ethnographics. Yeah, ethnographic. We call it the right to succeed. Right. And if your audience would like to hear how I thought of that idea, it's yeah. another interesting story. Sure. In 1992, I was transferred to London. And the office was in Egham. It was the old offices of Richardson Vicks. And our CEO and his team fly in to every place in the country from Cincinnati. And so this time they came to London and they review all of the businesses in that location. So all the beauty care businesses have to do a review. And they, they give you about 35 minutes. And we had just purchased a company called Eurocost Cosmetics. And they had two fragrances, a Laura Biagiotti fragrance and a Hugo Boss fragrance. And they were about to launch something called Venezia, which is just Venice in Italian. Okay, okay? Venezia. And they had set up the room and it was the most beautiful thing you'd ever seen in this conference room. The bottles, the backgrounds, the posters, even down to the minute details of what would be on the counter when you went into a department store. And our CEO was named Edwin Arts, Ed Arts. And he was known as the Prince of Darkness in, in uh, Alicia Swayze's book called Soap Opera. <laughs> and he, he looked at them and he said, now go ahead and start presenting. And they did. And he stopped them less than two minutes into their presentation about Venezia. And he said, wait a minute, <clears throat> you're telling me how beautiful all this looks, but why is it going to work? What right do you have to succeed? <laughs> and Very they were dumbfounded. <laughs> and listen, I didn't have to say anything at first because here I am just a young transferred guy. And these guys are the acquisition people. They have to answer the question. And the president, he very bravely taps the side of his nose and he says, it's my nose. You know, this is the right to succeed, my nose. I can choose a perfume women will love. Wow. And Ed Art says, but it's my money. And it was the end of the meeting <laughs> because he goes, until you prove to me with data that you're going to sell more product, we're not launching this product. So they go around the room and he said, well, didn't Don Donovan just get transferred over here from P&G and wasn't he our brand manager on Zest Bar Soaps? And he'll solve that, right? And he said, don't He's come back. This is the data. This is, he looks at me and he goes, I want the data and how this is going to work. And I want you to build the entire plan. I, I want you to tell me how the category is going to be solved by Procter & Gamble. And I did do that, Dan. So I then, when I left P&G, I said, I'm going to call this technique the right to succeed. Love that. Yeah. One of the things and why this fascinates me so much is... A lot of startups listen to this show as they're building their companies. And one of the things I read all the time is one of the biggest areas of failure is marketing branding. They, they, you've got these people that have a genius idea, creative product, and then don't know how to brand it or message it to their prospective clients. And so learning that you've got data science behind it intrigues me because I've met company after company, media company after media company, marketing company after marketing company, branding after branding, that really likes to go with their gut. It's like, oh, there's all these pretty things that we'll develop for you, and their gut tells us this. What I love about what you do, it's, and I've heard you say this term, zero waste marketing. Yep. Can you talk to me about that? I would actually say that what we're talking about really is the big problem, whereas people said 50% of my advertising is wasted. 
Okay. Yep. And so I would make a small change and call it zero waste media. Okay. Because what you have to do is there's two things you have to do. If you're doing a startup business, listen, tell yourself there's two things I got to remember. And they're not very hard to remember. I've got to have distribution. I have to get have a way to get my product to the customer, right? The second is awareness. You have to have distribution and awareness. Now, there's much more to it, right? Because awareness has to be among the right people. It has to be the prime prospect, the person who would actually want to buy the product. So we have to think about who that might be, right? And we have to prove that this person would have a higher propensity to buy than this other person. Mm -hmm. So here's your second two words to remember. <clears throat> probability and magnitude. Is the probability the greatest among this set of people to buy my product? And is the magnitude of my unit volume sales highest among that group. So probability and magnitude. I wouldn't approach any business without this type of discipline. I would say I've got to have this discipline. So the problem has just always existed is how do you get awareness among this prime prospect audience and the tool being so blunt? I mean, think about a blunt tool like you have something very specific you want to sell. Let's pretend that we were back in the early 80s and this was a bottled water. Bottled water. We used to joke, like, no one's ever going to buy bottled water, right? <laughs> but that, that, that audience at the time was quite small because people were just getting their water out of their tap. They had to figure out what are they going to do. So they had to solve awareness and distribution. Now, still, when you advertise any product, if you then don't make it water and you make it vodka instead, there's only so many vodka drinkers, right? I don't know if you drink vodka or the other people in the room drink vodka, but there's only so many. Because some people don't like it. They never even tried it. Right. You have to find vodka drinkers. Otherwise, when you advertise on television, you are advertising to a whole bunch of people who don't drink vodka. Mm -hmm. So every dollar of that media is wasted, isn't it? Yes. And every dollar on radio to the same kind of audience is wasted. Right. And if you put up a billboard, everybody who drives by, no, because only some of the people drink vodka. Right. Shotgun approach is what they call it. Yeah, it's too much of a shotgun approach. So what we've done, Dan, and in a nutshell, what it is, is we've said, how would you fix that? Well, we fixed it by actually getting a program that looks at Google's API. Okay. <clears throat> and there are 2 billion searches a day. We are not buying search terms. We are literally looking at the API and all of the searches that every person and every device has done for a day. And then we look at, let's just use the vodka example, anybody who typed vodka or any vodka brand name. And then we look at every other search that that same device, that's a person, also did. And now we build a correlation. We call that a behavioral cluster. It's an intent-based media program. Now, we are looking at the past, Dan, right? Mm -hmm. But after we look at one day, then we look back two years. And we'll find how that develops because there's very few people. At, listen, isn't Tito's Vodka really famous down here in Austin? Oh, yeah. <laughs> all over the world. <laughs> now it's all over the world. I mean, they're kicking their people's butts in Northern California. Yeah. I mean, it's very successful, right? Yeah. But at one time, they had no distribution and no awareness. Correct. But if you try to launch Tito's in some place where there's really very low awareness, you're going to need a media program that talks to people who drink vodka. Right. So if you want to make sure that that goes to the right person, you do this Google API thing and create what's called a behavioral cluster. And we're now we're looking at the past. But now when we make an ad, we send it only to people who in days T plus one. So if today is T and yesterday is T minus one, tomorrow is T plus one. Yes. So 
time plus one or time plus 20, the, any time in the future, any do, anyone who does any action that we have developed into our behavioral cluster, they get an ad for a vodka. And only those people. And explain to me the difference between that. I know a lot of media people talk about Google AdWords and, you know, doing like that. And this sounds like completely different than what... 99% of companies are doing out there. It is completely different. If you if you talk about, people talk about SEO or SEM or any kind of lookalike audiences, any of that, that's not what we're doing. We are literally looking at the intentions that people did. Right. And we know that because they typed these words into the Google API. And our computer program looks at it and says, look at those actions they did. What other actions did they do? And so what we, we, we marry them up. We create a correlation. And then afterwards, we, we then, it's called audience first, right? What we're looking at is an ad is only going to go to that person right there, audience first. She takes an action and types something in the behavioral cluster. It doesn't even have to be vodka because of magnitude and probability. I see. You see, we know she's a vodka drinker because she did three actions that we know vodka drinkers do. Got it. So as soon as she does that, audience first, we send an ad to them. And I know that nobody right now is doing this. And do I think other people are going to catch up to me? Yes. Are other people going to think of this? Yes. <laughs> and are they going to try to build it? Yes. But am I afraid? I mean, am I doing this interview because I'm afraid someone's going to come out and do this better than me? Right. You can't be. Right. You have to use intellectual honesty and say, other people can do this maybe even better. But you know what? We're first. We're growing fast, Dan, and we are proving to our clients we will sell more product. Through zero waste. Through like, zero waste. I, I love that. And back to the 35 years experience, I'm also familiar with this. Google API is not something, something everybody can get to. It's a relationship that you've, you've got special with Google to be able to access this. You know, we probably shouldn't reveal too much about that, but yes, Dan, that's right. Okay. People that worked with me before and we've worked together for years uh, have the relationships we, and our relationships tied together. Connect there. I just wanted to point out that this is something that it's not anybody can just go and do it. It's so, something that's this 35 years of hard overnight success that you've been able to do. At the end of the day, business is relationships and it's having these type of special relationships. So you're, you're, you're doing the ethno studies, you've got the analytics and algorithms to go do these searches, and then you find the unique message to, to um, help clients understand, clients mean companies, understand what they've got. And this is all incredibly important for a company to succeed. As I mentioned, you know, one of the things I find all the time is people just don't spend enough time in that compartment. They just kind of feel like they, if I build it, they will come. And that's not the case all the time. I mean, you got the unicorns that will happen, but that's not the case all the time. Do you have any stories you can, I mean, examples that would you be comfortable sharing of, of some successes that would be okay? I think, I think I should tell you one story for sure. And you tell me whether you think that's the best one. Perhaps the story of Aston Martin and what's uh, matter to people who buy a Highline vehicle. I'd love to, because I've heard this story before, and I'd love if you're okay telling this story, share what you found out and how you came in and the whole thing. Let's begin with some background. Again, if okay. you don't think like I think, or if you don't have the training I have, I'm not sure you would do it, but maybe you would. So again, using intellectual honesty, there's lots of people smarter than me. 
the truth is that because I did this for 35 years, I'm a, I'm a Methuselah, you know, the oldest guy in the Bible. He lived till 969 years in marketing. I've seen everything. Got it. So Aston Martin, every year in the United States, there are more than 15 million cars, new cars, not used cars, new cars sold on dealer lots. 15 million. Wow. There's a whole bunch more that are sold, you know, to car companies like Hertz, right? Yes. But retail, I'm talking retail, so more than 15 million. The number of high-line cars, cars that cost $200,000 plus, is only 15,000. Oh, wow. It's a tiny number. Right. And so if you are going to be Aston Martin and compete in that category with Bentley, Lamborghini, the highest level of uh, vehicles that can be purchased, right? Ferrari. Yeah. You're trying to find needle in a haystack. Needle in a haystack, right? right? Yeah. So first, Dan, we did that ethnographic research. We talked to 25 people who had purchased one of these very expensive cars, and we did it ethnographically and to get them to talk about the car. And when one of those people talked about the car, that individual said, you know, as a member of the Dallas Country Club, when I drive in, I want people to know I'm arriving before I arrive. And we said, well, that's interesting. Well, why did you say that? And he goes... Because nothing sounds like an Aston Martin. Wow. I'm pausing on purpose. That is an amazing insight. That people bought a sports car, not just for how beautiful it looks, or even how wonderfully it's made. Because an Aston Martin is a handmade vehicle, and it's one of the only ones in the whole world that's still handmade. Wow. But they, they, they buy it. Because nothing sounds like an Aston Martin. So in, in P&G parlance, that's actually the functional benefit, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of emotional benefit, but the functional benefit, the car itself, it does this thing. Mm -hmm. But there was another benefit, a benefit that was an emotional benefit. And here's what happened, Dan. People talked about it and they said, an Aston Martin is unlike any other sports car. But then during those interviews, Dan, they also said, I'm unlike any other person. So really, this is the emotional benefit. So really, we combined the idea of nothing sounds like an Aston Martin and unlike any other, which is actually speaking to the person. If you are unlike any other, you should be looking at an Aston Martin. I, I like that, yeah. We ran this, so we, we learned all this. We, we, we showed it to the client. They thought it was wonderful. Dan, you even know the story of Aston Martin, right? They, they actually tune their cars, right? They tune the engine. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they tune the engine to tones. To, to, tones, musical, tones. to musical tones. And they, so back to what the story is, they didn't, re they do this, but they didn't realize that that was what they were selling. They didn't realize how central it was yeah. to the purchase of the vehicle. But they've been doing it. They all believe it, right? So once again, isn't that Sherlock Holmes? We come in and say, nothing sounds like an Aston Martin. And those guys go, yeah, we know. We do it on purpose. I go, why, brother, I wish I could shake your hand across the table. Yeah, why don't you tell everybody? Yeah. <laughs> because you know what we discovered? That's a that's a core causal factor for purchasing the car. So is unlike any other. So we then made advertising that did this, and then we used the Google API and we caused ads to only go to Highline vehicles. To Highline vehicle purchasers. Before you jump into that. Tell us about the cluster of what you found these, this looks like. What else are they doing? What, what behavior are they Without doing? revealing too much of my secret sauce, I'll just give you a very okay. quick snapshot. Sure. It's fascinating because I'm glad you asked me. You know, they search, obviously, for certain kinds of cars, right? right? 
but then they do things that are in the auto business that are not necessarily brand specific. And one of the things that they do is they look for auto auctions. Okay. They're looking to buy the 1969 James Bond Aston Martin. You see? <laughs> now, we're not looking at people who go into auto auctions to try to buy a Toyota, right? Because right? there's all kinds of auto auctions. We look for the kind that are, where people are selling classic cars, mm-hmm. right? So it's not a fascinating thing. So it's part of the behavioral cluster. A person who would do that is a potential person that would take this action. Now, beyond that, here's three fascinating things. We also have to look, because remember, we don't know the individual. We, we, we really don't know the individual because Google protects people. There's completely, everyone should realize you're completely safe right. online now. Right. You, you really are. I mean, Google does not reveal anything. Google ID, nothing. It's all anonymized data. It's just information. Right. And again, because we're just doing this behavior-based, intent-based, deterministic media, we're just finding out what it is that are co- what those things are that are correlated. And so, people who do this, you got to make sure it's not a seventeen-year-old boy, right? Right? <laughs> because lots of seventeen-year-old boys shop Ferrari, you right? Watch the James Bond movies. First thing you search for, <laughs> you know, exactly. And they go online. Some of these. That's right. They see an old James Bond movie. The next thing you know, Aston Martin, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we got to make sure those people are excluded. Because that would be waste. That would be waste. That would be waste. Exactly. And at the end of the day, it's a big waste for, for, for an Aston Martin to be like AdWords, right? It'd be a big waste of money because of all these kids that are looking for this. Oh, exactly right. So because it's behavioral clustering, the people do other things that prove, one, they're millionaires. Isn't this fascinating, right? Yeah. So... People who are millionaires who also get paid big bunches of money at specific times of the year, like partners in law firms, doctors, etc., who get a lot of money, like end of year bonus, they change their behavior when that bonus happens. They change their search behavior. So if you can look at somebody and you look at them all year long during the for Google API and you look at you know devices, they're not doing anything like this, and then all of a sudden they do three things: they look for investment advice. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Right? And they, they look for it at very high level, you know, uh, exclusive investment advising companies. Not, not, not just the generic ones, right? right? Not where you're doing 695 trades yourself. Right. Where, where, you know, where you're looking for somebody who's going to manage your money. Right. Right? And the next one that people do a lot is they look for travel. And they don't look for travel on Expedia to fly, you know, to Miami. No, we're talking to South America. Got it. Right? Or they're going to go take a cruise on the Danube. Got it. Yeah, in first class. Got it. Right? Yeah. 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 And then the last thing they do is, and I think this is of all the most fascinating, is that most purchasers of Highline vehicles are men. Not all. Okay? Not all. But most are men. But if you are going to buy one, you are very likely also shopping women's jewelry. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Not men's jewelry, not watches that you are going to wear. And here's why. Do you remember back to the ethno? I hope you're finding this story fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Back to the ethno, we found there are three barriers to buying uh, uh, any Highline car, any Aston Martin, any of them. Three barriers. First barrier was, you know, I don't have the money right now. You know, see, isn't that solved by, like I said before, well, this person is a partner in a firm and then they get their big check? Right. Right? They know they're going to have the money. Yeah, they're just planning to spend it they're, before they get it. Yeah, they're planning, yeah, but they're not spending it now because right. they don't have the money. Right. The second is life circumstances. Uh, sometimes people feel like this isn't really the right time in my life to buy a sports car because I really should be driving an SUV. Mm-hmm. I got three kids or something. 
Right, yeah. Because yeah. it's a little too selfish for me to do that. Because that's just life circumstances. But the most important one, the hardest barrier to overcome is my wife won't let me buy one. <laughs> that makes sense. Makes sense. <clears throat> because she says, well, listen, <laughs> that $250,000 purchase dollar that's not really for me. Don't bring that home as an anniversary gift, right? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, this is, you are buying that for you. So you know what happens? Yeah, to make up the gift. To make up for that. They go, and I'm giving you an example. They look for Boucheron Paris. <laughs> You know, a very expensive piece of jewelry that is going to be diamond uh, clustered emeralds, right? I mean, it's this, gonna, this it's gonna really be does remind me of Sherlock Holmes because you are finding out the the buying patterns and what this person is doing, and you're you, you're getting to know the person by what they're searching. That's what they're searching for. Awesome. Yeah. And so again, that's how it's done. And now, without revealing you know, sure. specific things about Aston Martin or whatever, but we we succeeded in market hugely with this idea. Just huge. I mean, we did a test market. Sales were up 60%. Balance of country was only up 2%. Wow. So we did a true Procter Gamble test, test markets. Then we did another test again this year. And we, we didn't do it in the same cities. We did to, to, 10 totally different cities. We got the same result again. And so we really so know data is there. Data is there. So once again, isn't data the key? But not just data, big data. Data analyzed and synthesized that proves you're going to actually sell more. And Dan and I, we, we were just talking to somebody and um, that individual asked me, how did you do attribution modeling, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, said to him, listen, I'm going to give 100% of the credit to Procter & Gamble training. Mm -hmm. Because the answer is, we said how many cars were sold in the test market versus a year ago from October to December. The growth, how, what is the change? And then we said, what is the change in the balance of U.S. in the same three months versus a year ago. And one was up 60 and the other was only up two. And the guy we just met with goes, well, that's proof, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. that's what he's data. It's data. It's, 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 it's what the CEOs want. I mean, you spend all this time, you raise capital, you do all the things that you need to do to build a company and you, you, you do all, you do all that with science and data, right? You want your marketing and your message to be the same way to produce those results, the most accurate way, safest way to get the results. So I love it, right? So, so some some of my competitors, sure. right? Sure. So I'm not I'm not saying bad things about them, but sure. people in the digital world and yep. people that work in advertising, they'll very often go into clients and say, you know, we spent this money efficiently. Look, the click through rate number is this, and the cost per thousand is X, and we we spent it spent less money on a cost per thousand than you were spending, so we saved you money. We got more people to your website and all. But I say to them, but to what end? Okay. The thing that matters is, did you increase unit volume velocity? It is really the only thing that matters. You can talk about media delivery and efficiencies. You can talk about that all day long to me. If I'm the CEO or the owner of some private company, talk to anybody who's actually started their own company and the money gets spent is their own money, right? Right? They will tell you, I want you to sell more. Right. <laughs> right. At the end of the day, sell more. Don't come in and give me some idea about what you think you're doing from an efficiency standpoint or a media delivery standpoint. Come in and show me you sold more. Now, we have one last thing, Dan, and you've, you've heard this before. We also do what's called behavioral economics. Okay. We build a plan that says if you invest this much money at this cost per thousand with these impressions against the prime prospect, 
you will sell this many units. So an algorithm. An algorithm of behavioral economics, the behavior of what consumers do and the economics of what that impact actually is. And we have been within plus or minus 5% before we've actually run the ads. Wow. We can predict how many units will be sold of something. And then, yeah, it's powerful. It's, it's powerful. powerful. No. Now you can you can go to the the CEO and say, you you know, the, so one of the things that I find uh, when CEOs or or founders of companies are building their business plan, their business modeling, it's pie in the sky numbers. Well, they're, they're making they're, it up. They're making it up. They're, they're giving it their best gut check. Sure. Guess, but everybody knows those numbers aren't accurate. However. If they came into this work with you, so it sounds like you can get within 5% accuracy before you even spend a dollar. That's right. Wow. That's yeah. powerful. That's big. Yeah, and I think that's really why, again, hey, after 35 years of overnight success, right? <laughs> I worked my whole life trying to get all of this knowledge and now applying it to other businesses and figuring out before we do something, how will it actually work? And then having the case histories that show Yes. Listen, I don't think we're going to sell 60% more for everybody. For Aston Martin, we did. Right. 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 And we're selling more for lots of companies. And the growth rates are something like between 5 and 9% more than they were getting before for the same spending. Well, right. So efficient. Efficient. More efficient. We're, 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 hitting, we're hitting the prime prospect. Listen, the right person with the right message at the right time. 5 to 9% is... Big. No, it's big if it's at the same spending level, right? Right. right? Because now you're talking about incremental revenue, mm -hmm. and that incremental revenue is going to have a big incremental impact on your bottom line, because a lot of that's going to go to profits. Yeah. If we're not increasing the marketing and advertising spending, we're going to make more money. Right. But really, we don't deal with that because it's up to you. You're running your business. Mm -hmm. You're you're charging your P and L. Right. We help you do the rest. We help you get top line revenue growth, and that's where most people actually need the help. It's quite difficult to increase unit volume velocity, right? Yeah. Everybody knows how hard that is. Everyone who's in business anyway. I love this. So I've just gotten caught into what you're doing. Back to being a founder. So you're both a master of your craft, mathematics, your passion. Obviously, you can tell in the energy of how you just dive into your work. But you're also a founder of a company. How's, what is that like? Finding your own, being a founder of your own company and doing this. I would admit to you that it was really scary. I, I, if people talk to former Procter & Gamble people, they will tell you we had the golden handcuffs. Mm -hmm. You know, we really wanted to stay. After you've been at P&G five years, remember the famous 10,000 hours? You and I believe in exactly the same things. Yep. Right? I mean, my vice president told me when I got there, you really don't know how to do anything. We'll see what you've done after five years. That happened to be on my second day on the job. Yeah. So he said, come back and talk to me in five years. I was afraid to do it. Everybody at P&G said, I don't know why Don Donovan is still here. I mean, the guy is just an entrepreneur. He, he, we're always putting him on new assignments. He's always solving these problems. He doesn't need us. You know, he, he could go find more interesting things to do. My, my, my evaluations are always top of, the, top of the class. But they, they just wondered why I was still there. And that's because I was afraid, Dan. 
I'm kind of like burying myself here. That's it's true. scary to go out on your own, dude. Oh, yeah. You know? For sure. Are you going to raise money? Are you going to give up part of the company? Somebody going to have to invest in you. Is it going to be your father-in-law and that person going to lose their money if you fail? I mean, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that stops people from doing it, right? right. There's lots of people who are really brave that just do it because they don't have much to lose, but I had a lot to lose. Right. <laughs> I was I was still going north at PG. Yeah. I think it's because I got the idea that made me do it. I got to the point where I said, you know, and if any young person is listening to me or even an old person, right? And say, if you have the idea and now you can't do anything else, you know, you, you gotta do it. You can, it gets to the point where I just said, I gotta do it. I gotta go on my own. I, even if I fail, I gotta tr try this. I want it to be on me. I don't want it to be on even, even something that could happen to me above me, get a bad boss, or my, the brand I'm on starts to fail in the marketplace or something out of my control, I have a good enough idea that I'm gonna find out. You wanted to take the responsibility. I did. I wanted, you know, didn't, didn't Proctor give me lots of responsibility? Sure. Did they give me lots of accountability? Sure. Did they give me lots of authority? Minimal, right? <laughs> so when you talk authority, right. you're talking about the final decision maker. Exactly, top of the totem pole. Top. On the totem pole. Right. Did I want to be CEO of PG? Maybe. There may have been a time where I wanted to do that. But really, what I genuinely wanted was authority. I had responsibility and accountability, and I wanted authority. And I thought the idea was good enough that I should go do it. And I proved to myself that I could do it inside PG multiple times, you know, running new businesses, starting things up, inventing things where my name is on patents. And I said, I can do this. And because I, I got to the point where I, it was that or go crazy, I had to start. And I started it with the passion of the books I read from Conan Doyle about Holmes. So when I called it Baker Street, I had the story. I had the brand. Don't, don't you agree? I have a great brand. Yes, I love it. You know, it's called Baker Street. Mm -hmm. And I say it's 221 Baker Street, the address of Sherlock Holmes. And everybody gets like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, you're a problem solver. Oh, we, you, you know, we could be in trouble. You could, you could help us solve it. But you'll make it elementary. And I say, yes, I'll make it elementary. Yeah. And so that's really, to be honest with you, that's really what happened. I had to do it. Now, I've learned a lot in 16 years. And one of the things I would tell people is, and they've heard this a million times from, from founders. Yep. If they've listened, they've heard the same thing I'm about to say, which is to find a bunch of other people who are really talented and, and, and get them to come with you and give them some of the equity. Right. right? I mean, make sure that you're not, they're just not your employees. Make sure that they're partners in some way with you. That they believe. That they believe they really want to do this and they want to do this with you. And that's what we have at Baker Street. We have superb, uh, I have superb partners. Well, I love the story. I love what you're doing. I love the passion. I love that the, the fire in your belly got so strong that you had to do this, this, this thing. And we're, you're seeing tremendous success. So congratulations on that. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I know we talked about doing something special because I'm sure that People that are listening to this, real listeners might want to just like reach out. I think we're going to create an online form for them to like answer some questions and you can, you can look at the data before you can set up a call. But thank you so much for being with us today. I really have enjoyed this story. Dan, thanks so much for having me. This is a great opportunity for me too. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don, for sharing with us how making a leap can be scary, but just making the jump is the first step. You can learn more about Don and see some of his work by visiting bakerstreetsf.com, 
We put a link in the show notes. The Masters and Founders team includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you, everyone at Founding Media, for your support. If you have been enjoying this show, I would suggest you check out Packing Taste. It's another Founding Media podcast all about the consumer packaged goods industry in Texas. We will put a link in the show notes.